0: Amen. Alright, if you have a seat, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, if you don't, they're in the back, you can grab one and take it. Open to James chapter 5. We only got uh, three, I think three more sermons in the book of James, so I'm excited to finish it. And uh, it's been uh, it's been an interesting journey for me personally, just because every time I preach, I get to sit on some of the more practical things of Christianity that I realize I'm not always that refined upon, which is uh, good uh, in many ways, so it's been challenging for me. But we're going to get right to work in James chapter 5, verse 7, and uh, we'll go through a few verses there. If you follow along with me, verse 7 says this, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful, or literally full of mercy. Well, last week, uh, James brought some really hard words, or very direct words, if you will, and he warned the, the rich, in parentheses, uh, about coming judgment of God, who uh, had heard the cries of the people that they had either hurt or they had ignored by their greed. And we ended with uh, that really uplifting pre-Christmas sermon with a comparison to Judas and asking ourselves uh, about that, the man, Judas, obviously the one who betrayed the eternal Son of God for uh, a few months' wages and some change, 33 pieces of silver, and I know, at least personally, but I know I've talked to others, a lot of us left um, challenged, maybe even a little disturbed, as we considered whether or not we were one of the rich that James was talking about. And as God, I think, and I can speak for myself personally, as, that reveals, if he, as he reveals kind of how, how short we fall in various areas, and they're probably different for many of us, but James has been very practical we start thinking about how we use our tongue and how much we really depend on God's wisdom and prayer or uh, how we judge quickly situations of people and things, um, how we get angry maybe quickly or even the use of our wealth as we heard last week. We can never, ever, ever, ever forget as we see where we fall short in all these areas because that will be a constant throughout our lives. It should be a constant Paul talks about how he has not yet arrived, and he will not be made perfect until he's dead. And the same is with us, but as we see that, not to forget that Jesus died, and that there is no condemnation for any of those failings of ours for those who are in Christ. That's primary. I think it's wise for us to to look at the practical stuff, and quite frankly, I need those kind of words of wrath, if you will, or the hard words from dad, from a father. I also need the words of praise from that father. So the words that say, no, you're screwing up, those are good. Those are good words. But I also need the words to say, I love you, and I'll help you, and it's okay, from the father. We can't get out of balance with either of those. It needs to be somewhere in the middle. And those words, unfortunately or fortunately, often come from, the father's children to his children, from a guy like me, a brother, to a brother or a brother to a sister, to say, hear the hard words that Dad is sharing with us. And I think that, honestly, that's one of the beauties of our gathering. That is why, a major reason, why we should be in community to one another, so that we can give each other the hard words. I mean, it's very easy for me to put together a sermon and sit down and go, let me make you feel good about yourself, every time and we need those sometimes, but a lot of times we need the hard words. And Hebrews ten is a great verse for us to sit on, ten twenty four, which challenges us about our gathering and says, let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as we are here, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So it sounds very similar to James. And so we are to encourage one another. And sometimes those encouragement are hard words, but let they never be too hard as to forget the gospel peace, which is two-sided, our sin and God's love. But James has spent the, the middle chapters of this book describing a lot of negative aspects of behavior, what not to do. You can go into James chapter 3, and this is how I should not use my tongue, because this is what happens. And now he returns to, to encourage his brothers. He says it multiple times in these few verses, his brothers, brothers, as he's writing to his church. And he is going to encourage them about what to do in these difficult circumstances. So he's shifting from what not to do to what to do. Kind of how he began the letter. And instead of dress, addressing those guys that are not being loving, which would be the rich, as we spoke about last week, the ones that are causing oppression, he turns to those that are not being Loved the ones that are the victims, if you will, of the oppression and what to do under this trial that they're experiencing that they really have very little control over. And so, in doing this, he kind of echoes the words as he began the letter, and he's kind of bringing the letter to close here. So you have these bookends. And if you remember, he began the letter by saying, "Take joy in those trials." And it's like that's the last thing I really want to hear in the midst of a trial. It seems, and people have gotten very flippant about that. You should be joyful as if we're some kind of masochistic people that are like, yeah, I really enjoy this pain I'm suffering. I don't think that's what he wanted to, but he wants us to look beyond the pain as to what God was doing perhaps through that. But he began by saying, take joy in the trials, and we'll be tempted to kind of dismiss or maybe um, ignore the same thing he says here, which is to be patient in the trial. And, as I said, with joy, as you suffer in a trial, whatever that trial is, and everyone has, it doesn't have to be the most devastating thing in the world, it's that situation that you want changed, that thing that is out of your control that you can do nothing about or feels like you can do nothing about, you're in a trial. And for someone to say, well, just be patient, it's very difficult to hear, at least for me. It just seems kind of flippant, like you don't get it. And James just kind of says, be patient, brothers. And I know that their response is probably, are you kidding me? I have, you know, long I've been oppressed in this situation, unfairly, unjustly. And I know a lot of us believe that as we're in this trial, that we've been very patient. And I know that many of us, friends I have that I know uh, will hear this, and myself included, that Some of us are experiencing terrible sufferings today, and then some of us are experiencing some maybe minimal or smaller trials that are just irritations today. And I know some people have been in a trial for days, some just weeks. Some of you maybe have experienced a trial for years. And you've come here with with your burdens and your struggles and your frustrations and your pains, and a lot of us feel like we have exasperated every ounce of patience that we have and that God isn't listening, that God has either forgotten or he doesn't really care. And you're probably or maybe some of you are at the point where you're like, I don't even think I'm going to be able to make it, whatever make it means. And I think as I've been just kind of sitting on this patience piece I think God wants to do more than just have us make it. Making it seems to kind of carry the idea of um, arriving somewhere, hopefully at a different place than you are now. You have this vision of this is what making it means to me, getting through it, would be this happening. And the view of, um, or say this view, of being patient, where you're just trying to get through to get to where you want to be, I think perhaps misses the moment as you're looking too far in advance of getting out of it as you wait for the Lord for, for what you think needs to change. And as you wait, you really do nothing but just kind of grin and bear it and get through it. And I think James is going to tell us here that we're supposed to do more than just sit and grin and bear it in these trials and, and just do nothing and wait for it to go away. We have a a role to play. So he begins by saying here in verse 7, Be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And he compares to a farmer. He says, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. And I don't know about you. I'll tell you about myself. I'm a very impatient person, very impatient, um, which is not a... Uh, something that, that is I'm proud of or even not proud of. is just who I am. I've always been impatient, even some of the little things. Um, I don't like surprises. Not a big fan of them. I don't like to wait for surprises. Um, they don't freak me out or anything. But it's like, great, wonderful surprise night. I like to know the end of movies before I see them. Um, I, then I will determine whether it's a story valid enough for me to go. I watch movies at home I watch a lot of movies, and my bride doesn't like to watch movies, so I'll end up watching a lot of movies by myself. I turn the subtitles on, and I put it on fast-forward. And I'll watch the movie faster, because I can read faster than they can talk. So I just go, 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 go. Nope, don't like it. Skip. Okay. And I like to get to the end, see the story. I'm impatient, and that's just the way I am. I I like to know, um, before I, like, when I was a little kid, I would search the house for the presents. Okay, I didn't get my wife, although one time, and I think her parents know this, she, they unwrapped the presents one time and then wrapped them back up again, and they hated their Christmas because they did that. I never went that far. I just found them when they were hidden and then looked at the boxes before they were wrapped. I was like, oh, this would be a pretty good Christmas, and then laid it there. Right? My mom eventually took a big trunk and padlocked it and said, they're the presents, good luck. And so it was no secret where the presents were, but you we can never get to them. But I was impatient. I like to know, like, when we are pregnant, my wife was pregnant, I want to know the gender of the baby. Some people are like, no, I want the surprise. Not me. Don't want to. Kaylin wanted to know the, the – um, she didn't want to know. She wanted the surprise. I said, that's fine. You don't have to know. I'm going to find out. So I was going to have the tech tell me, and I would keep it a secret from her if I could – And she said, no, forget it. If you're going to find out, I'll find out. So we found out, and I just like that. Every kid we found out. I'm a big believer in finding out. I like to open the microwave two seconds or three seconds before it's actually done, right? It's like you don't need those extra seconds, right? So you just close it up, open it up, and you're done. I'm impatient, very impatient. I don't like to wait. And the condition, we'll call it a condition that I have, is not helped by the world around us because the world... Is very impatient. There's a great film called Shawshank Redemption, and a guy gets out of prison. It's older gentleman. He ends up, I'll ruin it for you a little bit, he ends up killing himself because he can't handle the world. And the first thing he says when he gets out is like the world got itself in a big hurry. Life had sped up. And that's, we live in a very fast, impatient world. We click of the button, microwavable, you know, get ordained on the internet, instant messaging, society of impatience. That's what we have. And we're just, everything is faster and faster and faster. And we have instant oatmeal, instant credit, instant messaging, instant coffee, instant news updates, instant communication, instant relationships, strangely. And we're not asked in our culture to wait for much. My kids are growing up very impatient. It's difficult a challenge for them to ask them to wait. Wait for it. You know, they can't. They can't. And I think that part of it is our, our culture today that if we're asked to wait for anything... It's just torture. It's torture. And as a result, we look for instant solutions to our problems. And we look for uh, anything, or at least ignore anything, I should say, that's not a quick fix. And probably because it'll take too much time. And so when we encounter trials, instead of enduring the trial, as James is going to talk about here, The world will tell us, in the form of bosses and friends and TV even, or books, whatever, it will tell us to give up, because it's too difficult give up, it's not worth it. And that can translate to give up on a marriage, find a new job, abandon the family, take the easy way out, even if it's unethical, just to escape that pain of waiting and enduring. And it's kind of packaged in this, you don't deserve that kind of suffering, that kind of trial. You shouldn't have to wait. You have the right to happiness and comfort all the time. You've earned it. So when James uses the image of a farmer, which I grew up in Monroe, and there's some farms around there. It's a little more agricultural than maybe some of the cultures we're used to. But it's difficult for us to to even, I think, relate to farming and what that was like. Farming is, you know, that, that idea, and I, I have to picture ideas. Some of you may have grown up this way, and I don't know if you're maybe living this way today, but farming is is hard. It's difficult. It's, it's an all-day, you know, calloused hand, dirty, back-breaking, hard work job of jobs. And today, many of us, our, our difficult jobs amount to us being in cubicles and sitting around with, you know, like, looking at computers like zombies and getting carpal tunnel and maybe cancer from our Bluetooth or something like that. That's kind of the the most we work, if you will. And it's difficult. It's mind difficult, but it's not like farming. And farming is not only tough. I mean, it's just a difficult job, waking up early, going to bed late, doing constant manual labor. It is largely holistically dependent upon stuff that's out of your control. Is such a a job that is dependent upon God. And dare I say that farming, you actually, if you are this way, possibly closer to God in your practical dependence upon Him than you are in another kind of occupation. And it's because the farmer works and works and works and works, and then he waits. He just waits. Now, the Jewish farmers, and this is where James is talking about the, the rains and how he waits, they would plow and then they would sow the seeds in, in what would be the autumn month, so um, you know, obviously prior in the fall. And the early rains, he's talking about, would soften the soil. And then the latter rain would come in the early spring, which would be about now, February or March, getting closer, and it would um, mature, help mature the harvest. And the farmer had to wait many, many, many weeks for his seed that he started with, that he threw down to produce fruit. And as as he waited, the rains uh, would often turn his field into, uh, you know, it would take this muddy nothingness into hopefully this beautiful crop, but not every time. And he had responsibilities to do certain things certain ways and, and make the fields work and, and, and sow the seeds in the right patterns or rows, however you want to describe it. But he had very little control over very few things other than the work he could do in actually producing the harvest. In fact, if you think about it, he can every year he could work as hard as he could he could use the same plow, the same seed, and have the same effort, but have a very different result every single year. And it could be better or it could be worse. And a crop can be produced or wiped out in one season, even if he works the exact same way. Very hard. So he works, and yet the result is ultimately up to God, which is a very difficult profession where you're not you don't have control in a lot of ways and so he compares it james does to faith and he says you also be patient just like this farmer establish your hearts for the coming of the lord is at hand he says be patient like a farmer in your trial which he has already said at the very beginning of the book of james that this trial these tests of your faith are part of the journey of becoming more mature And so, like the farmer, we are dependent upon God in our own lives to bring the rains, they've got to come to soften it to begin with, and to bring the the latter rains, and to bring the sun that's going to warm it, and to have any kind of growth in the seed that we have planted, but it's all ultimately up to God. And so, we have to be each season patient and wait after we do our work to see what kind of harvest God is going to bring, which is both a little anxiety-creating, but perhaps a little exciting as well. But the reality is, and we've all experienced in our lives, that each season is different. We've all experienced seasons that are unique. We have seasons of extreme temperatures sometimes, out of our control. You have a season... Of where a bug gets in your crop. You know what bugs I'm talking about? Yeah, I'll name a bug. That I know you got my crop. And you like gets in your way and ruins your harvest for that season. You have seasons where um, you you have flourishing huge harvests that you ultimately, again, you worked the same way, did the same thing, out of your control, but for whatever reason, God blessed you in that season some seasons we experience tremendous fruit, and others we, we experience tremendous famine. And some people this season, for you, however your season long is, you're either flourishing and experiencing joy, but I'm thinking a lot of us, especially with the economy today, are experiencing incredible famine, something out of our control and we've done the same thing we've been doing. But in all seasons, our faith is growing, and patience is essential to it because all of life is still in God's control. Now, the farmer is dependent on these seasons, but we still, just as he does, have work to do. Now, in the previous chapter, at the very end of chapter 4, James warned readers not to fatten their hearts. He's like, you're fattening yourselves and your hearts for the slaughter. And here James is saying, strengthen your hearts and establish your hearts. In other words, he's, he's calling us not to give up, not to succumb to this trial if it's a famine or a bad season or extreme temperatures or is not as much growth or whatever it is that isn't happening that we wanted to, not to give in. Because the people he's writing to, are, again, are the people that are being cheated The people that are being overworked and underpaid or paid at all, they are being oppressed and there's very little they can do. And the truth is, if you think about it, there's very little that happens in our life that doesn't have some level of pain for the growth, whether it be emotional, physical, intellectual, any time I've ever grown, it's typically, I, I can't think of a time, been through pain. It's been through some level of suffering. And it's not necessarily the most devastating suffering, but I I don't learn very much in comfort. I don't learn very much when things are easy. I don't learn to endure without having something to endure. That makes sense. And the same is with the farmer, and the same is with us spiritually. So James says we are to remain firm. We are to work the seed. We are to do something. And the seed he talked about previously was the Word of God. We do have something to sow. Both sowing as in, yes, being in the Scriptures and dwelling on what God has told us. And letting that spiritual seed take plant, which isn't really out of, isn't in control other than we put the seed in our hand. And then praying and engaging with God personally. There is some work to do and serving as the Word commands us to do. And using all that God has given us, the various tools that He has given us, every one of us has a unique tool. All of our fields are going to look different, but they're all going to be tilled and worked. And you're like, dude, you put your lines different, or you planted this type of... Whatever it is, they're different, but God has all given us tools to be used and employed. And we are remiss and we fail in some respects, to grow if we don't begin to use the tools that God has given us, whatever they are. We don't just stand when things get difficult and do nothing. But like the farmer, we're constantly at work, constantly looking forward to the harvest. Establishing our hearts is part do the work and part wait for the harvest. And I think sometimes we miss doing one or the other. But part of establishing our hearts is developing a trust in God. And our our tests of faith often doesn't even begin when we're plowing the field and we're sowing the seed. It begins after you've done all that and you're waiting, which is the hardest part and most difficult for me. To be patient, to be content with how God is growing it, if he's growing it. Or if you've decided you're not going to grow here in this time. You're going to remain here because this is where I want you. But what happens oftentimes when the harvest doesn't appear the way we want it to, when we don't see the growth and the change in ourselves or in others or in the situation, Lord, I've been praying. I've been reading. I've been serving. Where's my harvest? I'm entitled to it. Imagine a farmer saying that. And then some cold comes in. It's like, what is this? All that work I did, it's wasted. Was it really wasted? It's tempting to think that when the harvest doesn't come up. And here's what happens. One, we begin to hate farming. I didn't read my Bible anymore. Doing that work, serving, is useless. It hasn't produced anything. I have been reading my Bible for three years. I don't remember any of it. And it's not impacting my sin at all. You begin to hate farming? You go and move to another field? Well, my dirt's bad. I'm going to go get a new field. Or we quit farming altogether. Don't you, I have friends who have done that? I have family members who have done that. It's called Christianity's Not For Me. It didn't produce the harvest that I wanted. Sound familiar? Like someone quitting their marriage, someone quitting their family, finding another calling, going to another church. I'm just not seeing the harvest that I wanted to. Not growing fast enough. People not changing quick enough. Situations are not improving soon enough. I'm done. And James says, "Yeah, I, I don't think you should sit and just wait." establish your hearts. And establishing your heart is more than just work. It's that relationship of trust with God that despite what the harvest looks like, I know that even in this famine, you're doing something greater than giving me just some fruit. Perhaps it's fruit I can't see. Faith is an active, volitional choice to govern your life with the belief that God is working your field right now even if it doesn't have the stuff that you thought it was going to with all the work that you put into it. But that His sun is still shining, that He's still working under the soil, that even through the blizzard of temperatures that seems to have ruined your field or the bug that came in, He's still at work. He's still at work. And verse 9 is a very intriguing verse. It says, It seems to come out of the blue here as he talks about this harvest that's not coming up. It says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. See, I think the first mistake we make is we don't work at all. We just wait. We do nothing with what I think God has given us. We should be motivated to work to use the field and the tools that God has given each of us uniquely because we know that the owner of the field is coming home at some point and is going to say, how's my field? And that can be judgmental in two different ways. It can be, oh my gosh, I did nothing, I feel terrible, or a father coming home and saying, wow, awesome. Loves us either way. But we know what it's like to have a father disappointed. Will he find us working? Will he find us squandering? Will he find us not even using what he's given us? Because God has given us many things. And I'm not talking about the material things. Think about the stuff. Let's just put material stuff aside right now. Because he's talking to the impoverished, the oppressed, not the rich anymore. I know we have a lot of stuff. But every Christian if you confess the name of Jesus Christ, if you believe that He died as your substitute on the cross for your sins and that He rose from the dead to give you new life because your life sucked, if you believe that, then you've been given salvation, you've been given the indwelling Holy Spirit to teach you, to guide you, to empower you. He's given you the Scriptures, given you the Gospel itself, the good news, the message of the Christ. He's given you a church family that you're a part of. He's given you spiritual giftings that maybe you've discovered or maybe you haven't. And the question is, what have you done since those things came into your possession? I don't know how measurable that necessarily is, but you know. What have you done since those things came into your possession? And the coming of the Lord is a major deal. It's mentioned something like 300 times in the New Testament, which is like one for every 13 verses from Matthew to Revelation. And yet, I'm not sure we actually live with the imminent idea of Christ returning at any moment. And if we did, how would life look for us? Because we ask ourselves a lot, like, if you were to die tomorrow, what would you do? We make our bucket list, right? Well, I'd do this, I'd do this. If Jesus was returning tomorrow, what? No. Would you work differently? Would you work differently? And this isn't a matter of like him coming home and having your hand in the cookie jar. I'm not talking about that. But would you think for a moment, if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow, would there be a sense of shame? Not shame in a salvific sense. There's no shame in Christ, no condemnation. But disappointment in that you didn't use what you knew God gave you to use. I think we need to live more with the idea, the truth, that Jesus is returning at any moment, and what that could mean. Matthew 25, if you ever get a chance to read that passage, it's actually very sobering. It's the the parable of the talents, what they each did with them, and the reactions of the owner of the field when he returns. So some of us don't work at all, we just wait. And then some of us, I think, make the mistake of not waiting and just working. And when we're not satisfied with the harvest, and because most of us don't think that um, we don't live with this eternal perspective, we start grumbling. We start grumbling. Things are not going the way I want. And our relationship with God impacts our relationship with others. It truly does. And so you can often see that as people relate with one another, uh, being unforgiving, lack of grace, not showing mercy, not serving, not sacrificing, they we have a misunderstanding of the gospel. And I would wonder about your relationship with God because the relationship with each other seems broken or a little off. We become, oftentimes, too dependent upon our work. And instead of working hard and patiently waiting for God to grow, we work hard and then pridefully pat ourselves on the back when we succeed or despair when we don't. And we begin to take all this responsibility for the blizzard that came through and wiped out our crops. we like, well, if I would have covered my entire field with saran wrap, it wouldn't have happened. You know, whatever it is, we begin to think about the idea of, if I just would have done this. I screwed up. Maybe it didn't. Maybe God just decided this is going to be famine for you this year, this moment. So that you will depend upon me a little bit more. It often reveals... I think, of faith, but not in the work of Jesus, but rather in our hard work, in our progress. and our disappointment and our pride in ourselves, when we begin to see the harvest doesn't work, guess what? It starts to get vented on one another. And this is the craziness of this verse. If you In James 3:18, he says something that I think at the time when I read it, I, I skipped over, it, but then this brought it back verse 318 says, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Well, you can't make peace with yourself. I mean, you can in some sense, but peace, when you're making peace, it kind of demonstrates that there's community going on. And it says, our hearts then play themselves out in community, in marriage, in family, in the church. And the funny thing is, or maybe the sad thing is, we become so focused on our own behaviors and our outward fruits that we we miss the harvest that's growing right in front of us and it's growing in our hearts because we can't see it. And then we vent and we start grumbling against our, our brothers who, in our estimation, should have more fruit too. It's our own relationship with God impacting Others, people, or our relationship with others. And so we become impatient with their growth. We become impatient with the changes that are not happening in our spouse and our friend or a member of the community. And we start grumbling and we start judging them. They should be serving more. My husband or wife or husband should be leading more, should be loving me more. Just change already. What's your problem? There's not enough harvest going on here. A lot of work that seems to have been done and there's no harvest. We start grumbling because we're so focused on our ability to change or to work. And we become so focused on every other person to the extent that we don't do anything ourselves. We get overwhelmed with just looking at everyone else and how they're growing. It's a funny thing. Almost to the person... Every person that has complained, and they, there are valid criticisms of, of our church in various times. I understand that. But oftentimes when someone comes with a self-righteous criticism, if you will, a complaint that's that's uh, not really founded, I can always respond. It's not that I always do, but I can always respond like, well, what are you doing? What are you doing to impact this, to change this, to grow yourself. They become so focused on what everyone else is doing because of the harvest that they're not seeing in their own lives. And Peter talks about the antidote to grumbling is actually being stewards to what God has given us, the work of the farmer to his glory. First Peter says almost very similar wording that James uses in First Peter 4 verse 7 even speaking about the end coming near. He says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling as each has received a gift. The tools of the farmer. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And he gives examples. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him be the glory, dominion forever and ever. That's the antidote to grumbling is to begin to use what God has given you to focus on what you have and the field that's been given and how you might bless others and glorify God through it. And then he ends here with this uh, amazing passage on the prophets. Seemingly disconnected, but I think really connected. In verse 10, James says this, As an example of suffering, let me give you an example. Talk about this farmer picture. Let me give you a scriptural example, fellas. He says, as an example of suffering and patience, take the prophets, these guys who spoke in the name of God. You consider them blessed because they remain steadfast. And so it's the very thing he's asking them to do. And then he talks about Job. And so as we work our field, as we trust God, as we live in community and we endure the brokenness that is us, we've got some broken tools sometimes, Stuff that doesn't work perfectly. We begin to see a harvest or we don't see a harvest. And James takes these prophets and says, these guys did the same thing. Now, he reminds us that um, when we go through sufferings, there's other, these other guys, these prophets, these guys that all had relationship with God, that is kind of things that we desire. If you think about it. We all want to know what God wants us to do. We all want to know what He is doing. And these guys had a relationship with God that is, is unlike any other. I mean, Who didn't want God to sit down and just talk to you directly? And, and God that would write on the wall to you and just do this. Like, Nice. I love it. Wish I had that kind of prophetic thing. But then you look at their lives. And you start checking out who these guys are and what they actually did. We fail to recognize that that kind of life, knowing God in that way, interacting with Him, where a life where you do all the work the way you're supposed to, everything is exactly as God declared it to be done, and they experience more trials and suffering than anyone else. Moses, great example, preached on Exodus last year. Moses goes after getting commanded by God who speaks to him through the shrubbery on fire. He says, go and tell them this. And he's like, no, I don't want to. I can't. Go and tell him. So he does. He goes straight up to Pharaoh, tells him exactly what God told him to say. And Pharaoh says, not going to happen. And now all your people are going to work twice as hard. And he walks out and everyone hates his guts. He did exactly what God asked him to do. And yet it resulted in the very opposite of a harvest that he wanted. He thought he'd go in there like, let my people go, watch this, Aaron. Nothing. Kick him out. You're going to work twice as hard now. And now your own people are like, what did you say when you went in there? You must have said something wrong. He's like, no, I said exactly what God told me to say. But we think that when we do it God's way, it suddenly can result in... in, Glory, as in a harvest of fruit everywhere. The fruit is often growing, but maybe it's still below the surface because these prophets, they had so much trial and suffering, each and every one of them. You take your pick. Hosea, Ezekiel, Daniel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Elijah, Elisha, each one saw God's people ignore them, sometimes try to kill them, the very people they're declaring God's truth to. He says, these guys are the ones that in Jewish culture and in our Christian culture, connected with that, that we go, man, those are the blessed ones. Because those are the guys that endured, especially when the harvest did not go as they thought it should, or maybe hoped it would. But it went exactly as God planned it to. They worked, these prophets did, and they waited, trusting that God was producing something, though many of them never got to see it. Never got to see it. We see growth often, but it often, always, or often, I should say always, comes through pain. And we have to wait to let the fruit grow. And then he goes into Job, who would be considered one of the prophets. And it's difficult to find a greater example of patient suffering than Job. And some of you may know the story, but Job was, would be considered one of, if not the godliest man on the planet at the time. And he loved his bride, and he loved his family, and he was a respected citizen in the community. And he had made he was so righteous, he made a covenant with his eyes so he wouldn't lust. He prayed for his kids every day just in case they may have sinned. He godly man. He was by best description a spiritual farmer who used every bit of stuff that God had given him to the fullest. And then Satan attacked and God allowed him to do so to demonstrate his faith like no one Probably has experienced. He lost his wealth. He lost his children. He lost his health. Then he lost the loving support of his bride who told him right after most of it to curse God and die. Just curse him, man. And his friends were against him and it felt like God was against him because he cried out to God and God didn't answer him. For quite a while. And God made him wait. And wait. Though he had worked. And Job complained. Because we kind of think that we should never complain against God. Job complained. Don't get me wrong. He never sinned in his complaint. But he complained. He cursed the day he was born. I wish I was never born. Cursed the day he was born. He cursed the not-so-helpful lectures of his not-so-helpful friends. He was a little miffed at his wife who, as I said, challenged or tempted him to curse God. But he said this, as he lost it all, as he had done it all right, he was, this is a guy that was on his knees every day just in case his kids had sinned. In relationship with God, God even demonstrated and spoke that said, this guy is godly. And he gets it all taken away and here's what he says. Talk about patient enduring. He says, as his wife tempts him to curse God, he says, Woman, you speak as one of the foolish women. Shall we receive good from God? Shall we receive fruit from God? A wonderfully colorful and fruitful harvest from God. And shall we not receive evil or famine or destruction? And all this it said Job did not sin with his lips. Even saying these types of things. So Job was not silent. But he patiently waited on God. And allowed him, if you will, to be God. Job was like that farmer who worked so hard and lost it all in some hurricane or twister that came through. And destroyed everything that he had. And it was completely out of his control. And when he was tempted to say, God doesn't love me, God doesn't know how much it hurts, God doesn't know how hard this is, God, how could anything of good come out of this? Here's what he said. This is Job. This is not someone talking about Job. This is probably what Job felt. This is Job. He says, chapter 23, verse 8, Behold, I go forward, speaking of God, but he is not there. And backward, but I do not perceive him. And the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. But he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. That was what he really believed. That that trial was producing something in him, though he could not see it. That was gold. He lost his wealth, but he did not desert the Lord. He lost his family. He did not desert the Lord. He lost his friends, his health, even his supportive bride. He lost everything precious to him. Everything. And yet he did not ever desert the Lord. And it, it was done, that's why he says, consider Job. Look how the story ended. When he was done, he was blessed, according to the Bible, much more than he ever had been blessed before. God poured out blessing on him. But Job himself expresses at the very end what was the greatest blessing, if you will. And I think the most important thing. In verse 42, verse 5, speaking to God after God has spoken to him and right before he gets all this blessing, he says, I had heard of you speaking to God. I had heard of you speaking by the hearing of the year, but now my eyes see you. What if, what if the most important thing to God is that you know Him? What if that's the most important thing to God? What if that is the goal of the harvest or your work and your waiting, regardless of the result? What if it's just to know Him? And what if John 17, 3, which Jesus our Lord is the prayer as He prays before He's arrested and says, this is eternal life, to know God. What if that's true? As He's about to be crucified, that's what His prayer is. What if the most effective way to know Him then, to depend on Him, to need Him, to want Him, and to love Him is to go through trials. To work and work and work And yes, sometimes the harvest comes, but what happens when that trial comes and it doesn't? And the harvest that you wanted in that person, in yourself, in that church, in that job doesn't come. What if that's exactly where God wants you? Because your faith, my faith, it's being tried, I'm sure, right now in some way. And the truth is, He knows exactly where you are. And He has you exactly where you are. So we're not to give up. We are not to give in. We're to be patient, remain steadfast, to endure, to stay the course, to stand firm, because everything worth anything, everything worth anything demands that we endure through pain. And God wants to do more than just have you make it. Especially if making it means you don't get Getting Him is the most important thing. And that might mean take you through famine. It might mean take you through a fruitful harvest. And I pray that's what it is. But if it's famine, be patient, be patient. Because God has you. He is still at work in the field. And there is a new season coming. As we celebrate communion, as we do every Sunday, because we're told anytime you gather my name, do this. So we do this remembrance of Christ, who through his sacrifice tells us that even through suffering and trial and pain, there is glory coming. There is blessing coming. He went to the cross for the joy, not for the enjoyment of the pain. He knew that would hurt. He didn't want that, but he wanted the joy that was coming. And so we celebrate that with the raising of the cup and the bread, which is his body and blood shed for us. Let's pray. Father God, we give you glory. We give you honor. I pray that we give you our trust, that you will increase our unbelief, that you are always at work. And Father, even if we work hard and the harvest doesn't come that we expect, I pray that we will still trust that you are at work. Help us to understand, Father, that knowing you, knowing you more deeply, may mean you take us and probably will mean you take us through trials. So as we pray to know you more, Father, let that be the cry of your heart, but let that be a sober cry. Bring us strength and encouragement, like the farmer, to get through the season onto the next until you come again. Let us work hard to the glory of You with all You have given us. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.